The reading this morning is from the second chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Keith, that was courageous. Anybody who can read God's word um, and list all those names, we ought to give him a hand, you think? That was amazing. Thank you. Well, beginnings can be both, well, glorious and messy. We'll never forget the birth of our two kiddos, Schaefer and Sarah. That moment when I held Schaefer and Sarah in my arms was like, for me anyway, an out-of-body experience. Now for Liz, that was another story, of course. It was very bodily. But for both of us, it felt like in that moment, that we were experiencing in that hospital room patches of God light. The birth of our children made us feel like we were somewhat spectators in something way, way beyond us, something truly glorious. The day of our children's birth is truly something Liz and I will never forget. And let me tell you, if you had children, it changed your life forever. See, new beginnings can be like that. They can be life-changing and even history-altering. Whether it's the birth of a child in a new organization, whether it is the public launch, like Airbnb coming soon, of an IPO that is very exciting. No matter what the beginning is, it often brings with it a sense of exhilaration and anticipation. This morning, the writer of the New Testament book of Acts invites each of us across the sands of time to a front row seat at one of the most exhilarating moments in human history, the first century when the church was birthed. It is a birth that will prove, like all births, both unimaginably glorious and yes, messy. 
Why? Because it is glorious in the sense that the triune God invaded human history and messy because this birth cannot be logically or humanly explained, nor tamed or domesticated, nor fully understood. The supernatural nature of the church's birth, let's be very honest, in the 21st century can be a real plausibility challenge. But why? Why is it that our thoughts and emotions and attitudes are so profoundly influenced by the cultural air we breathe every day? Perhaps one of the most important books of the 21st century, I would say at least the early 21st century, is written by a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. It is entitled, A Secular Age. And Taylor points to the increasing secularity that brings the strongest sense of skepticism and implausibility toward that which is supernatural. His book is so profound, he is being written about and quoted all over the country. And he adopts this idea, this phrase that you will run into in due course. And it captures the moment of our time. It is the phrase, an imminent frame. What does Charles Taylor mean by that? He means that for most people in the Western world, at least, the everyday experience of life reminds them that all there is is all that is now. That there is nothing beyond matter and our short lives are meaningless and only to be focused here and now. Now, as you know, as a thoughtful listener, skepticism toward the supernatural is nothing new in human history, of course. We will see in our text this morning in the first century, we had skepticism too. But we do have to say that cultural observers say the 21st century in Western, the Western world is skepticism unlike ever before on steroids. But the irony of our time, and you know this, at the same time there is such great skepticism about supernaturality, there is amazing interest in it. The irony is palpable. Think of the popularity of prosperity gospel preachers like Joel Osteen, the Dalai Lama, or good-hearted, wonderful Oprah Winfrey in her great appeal. Maybe she's going to run for president, I hear. As she promotes a kind of good-feeling, eclectic spirituality for all of us. Despite our increased secularity, it seems to me that the hunger for the transcendent seems insatiable and cannot be easily extinguished. There is a longing to experience the transcendent that is truly insatiable. Many people that you interact with each and every day, and some of you might be wrestling with this yourself, I find many people of faith who are very transparent with me in our times that describe this unsettling internal tug of war. Family members describe it. Friends at school describe it. College at work describe colleagues at work describe it, who wrestle with the incongruence of the world and evil and suffering, who deeply long for a reality that is more, but struggle deeply to believe there's more reality than the material world. And what we need to grasp is while the Christian faith is built on strong intellectual foundations, 
Is it possible to find greater experiential confidence in the Christian faith? The New Testament book of Acts answers this question with an emphatic yes. If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Now, as the book of Acts opens, Luke quickly catapults us from a modern God-absent world to a first-century God-bathed world. If you were here with us last week as we started the series, we noted that Acts 1.8 frames the entire book that sets the entire backdrop of chapter 2. So I want us to remember it because it needs to be a constant companion as we work through this series. Acts 1.8, Luke, Dr. Luke says this, who writes the book of Acts, you will receive power, quoting Jesus, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here we discovered last week that disciples are given a very clear and compelling earthly mission. That is to all people everywhere, but it is one that is going to require heavenly endowment, heavenly empowerment. Eugene Peterson, as he brilliantly does, often frames Acts and helps us understand the metaphor of a bridge. That's what it is to the 21st century. Eugene Peterson says this, the story of Jesus doesn't end with Jesus. It continues in the lives of those who believe in him. The supernatural does not stop with Jesus. Luke makes it clear that these Christians he wrote about were no more spectators of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God. They are in the action of God. God acting in them, God living in them, but also means, of course, in us. So the book of Acts is a vital bridge from Jesus and his disciples to the church and to us in the 21st century who are Jesus' resurrected hands, heart, and feet. As his resurrection power is unleashed through the Holy Spirit in the 21st century world we live in. For the Christian faith, I want you to grasp this so powerfully, I don't want you to miss it. The Christian faith as understood in the New Testament, is not merely a set of propositions we believe. That is important. But it is a dynamic experience with the living triune God every day. But what we will see is the DNA of the church emerges here in the birth of the church. And I want us to look this morning briefly at three characteristics of an experiential faith which the book of Acts frames for us. So I want to walk through this with you. First, the characteristic of a prayerful dependence. Secondly, a supernatural empowerment and a global reach. And again, these three characteristics we will see sprinkled throughout the whole book of the New Testament, book of Acts. So first, the prayerful dependence. I want you to know that as we enter chapter 2, we need to look back. The disciples have been told by Jesus to wait, to wait in Jerusalem to embrace their global mission until they are supernaturally empowered. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes, waiting must have been the last thing they wanted to do. But Jesus wants them to wait. Why is there a gap of several days here? We must not miss this. 
Why is there a gap between the promise of the Holy Spirit's unleashing and Jesus' promise? You will notice some things in chapter four, uh, one. Well, first of all, you will see a countercultural radical inclusion of men and women in the church. And in 114, you will notice the unity and dependent prayer that jumps from the pages. I don't want us to miss this as they are waiting on the empowerment of the Spirit. There is a saturation of unity, of radical cultural inclusion, and dependent prayer. A new day is emerging. Now, waiting, of course, is hard for all of us, isn't it? I've said this many times. You know I'm not the most patient guy. And this week, imagine me, uh, Pastor Tom, finding this little text on my phone after a long travel week in Washington, D.C. It's late Thursday evening. We're the last flight out to Kansas City from Reagan Airport. The last thing I wanted after a full week of work was to get this text from Southwest Airlines. You ever had that? You know, I liked a lot of texts, but I was really carnal. Your flight has been changed. That is, a new flight time. An hour later, it was already late. So I'm sitting there with my made to flourish colleagues trying to put a smile on my face when I'm really ticked. We were delayed forever. And it was very much carnal Tom. Waiting is hard for all of us. But I was reminded of an important truth. No matter what we wait for, we are a dependent creature. The world does not revolve around us. Maybe Southwest Airlines. Now, waiting, however difficult for us, we need to reframe paradigmatically from the early church's model here. The principle is that maturing faith and a deepening prayer life are at the welcome mat of an invitation to wait. When we are in God's waiting room, it is an invitation for each of us to greater dependence on God and to seek Him independent prayer. Like the first century disciples this morning, you may find yourself in God's waiting room. You may be waiting for a job. You may be waiting for a spouse. You may be waiting for a business deal to be completed. You may be waiting for a relationship to be reconciled or a prayer to be answered. So how are you doing in God's waiting room? Will you see this time of waiting as an invitation to experience a deepening, prayerful intimacy with Jesus. We must not miss that on the heels of Pentecost is the invitation to wait. There is a prayerful dependence woven into the church's DNA, into a rich experiential faith. But notice now, as we enter verse 1, that Luke frames the supernatural empowerment moment with these words. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Luke tells us the birthday of the church was on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, you know, when's the last time you used that word? It's a churchy word, right? 
But it's really important in the Bible storyline. We might think of it this way. If you've not read a lot of the Bible or the Old Testament, think of it like this. It was kind of a national holiday, kind of like Thanksgiving, yet with more of a religious focus. And instead of going to grandma's house for all the food and excitement, you went to Jerusalem as a pilgrim. It was a Jewish feast 50 days after the first Sabbath of, Pen of Passover. That's where we get this Greek idea, penta, which means 50. That's the idea of Pentecost. But think of it like a Thanksgiving Day celebration, only more religious. The Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament was also called the Feast of First Fruits. In an agrarian economy in the first century, with much less food security than we have today, there was this yearly celebration at the early harvest, the very beginning of the harvest. And this is very important symbolically here. Pentecost was one of the three Jewish pilgrimages. These were feasts to Jerusalem during the year. And this explains why Luke says that people from every nationality around the globe are present in Jerusalem. Luke wants us to grasp the rich symbolism here. The God's sovereign timetable of the Feast of Pentecost made the unmistakable point that the Holy Spirit's outpouring in launching the church was just the beginning of its mission. Just the beginning of a massive harvest through the world. Much, much more was to come. And we see it with shock and awe. This is the second characteristic of the church's experiential faith. And it is supernatural empowerment. Look at me at verses 2 through 4. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Luke wants us to understand that a new day in God's story is emerging. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Now remember, in the Old Testament, if you studied it, the, the Holy Spirit was given to individuals selectively to accomplish a purpose. But let me just tell you, it's just dumped on everybody. Or should I say, the Spirit is. Pentecost in 21st language was shock and awe. Luke's language here of a great sound, if you look at their text, and his comparison to a rushing wind has massive theological significance. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament uses one Hebrew word to describe wind and the spirit, back and forth. It's the Hebrew word ruach. And it's used to describe wind and spirit. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 in this picture of the Valley of Dry Bones talks about the spirit, the wind, coming across an army of dead bones scattered throughout Israel and bringing them to life of new creation. Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, that religious scholar, and says, Nicodemus, to experience the kingdom of God, you need to be born again, just like the wind. So what is going on here? Don't miss this. Like the wind in this metaphor, God is nowhere to be seen with one's eyes. But God is everywhere to be experienced. 
This is very important for us to grasp. Luke's description here in verse 2 of tongues of fire echo the book of Exodus where God's divine presence is manifested in visible form in the wilderness through the pillar of fire, the burning bush to Moses, if you remember, and the revelation of law at Mount Sinai. It frames the backdrop of the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. So here in verse 4, Luke explicitly states what he has implicitly stated in verses 2 through 3. That is, the Holy Spirit arrived in that place with such immediate effect on those gathered that they speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a picture of fire over every one of them, the divine presence. So the word of tongue, the word tongues, of course, in Christian history can take us to all kinds of places, which we are going to interact with you and we'll discover more in our series of the book of Acts. But let me just say for this morning's purposes and the immediate context, I take Acts chapter 2 as these tongues here in this chapter are known human languages. Why? I think it is best understood because the supernatural gift of tongues here is given in light of the mission of Acts 1.8. That is a supernatural ability to communicate the gospel to all cultures and all people. We must not miss that Luke's language of Pentecost heralds a brand new day in God's economy. A brand new day where the presence of God is not confined to a tabernacle or a temple or a building, but to a people. The new temple is now the church. It is people. So Luke is doing a lot of things here, but telling us that the Holy Spirit is coming with power. But it's not just the Holy Spirit in power, it is also the Holy Spirit in relationship. As a member of the triune God, the Holy Spirit is amazingly powerful. But the Spirit is also amazingly personal. So many times you hear people talk about the Spirit as an it or something out there. The Holy Spirit is not a mere force, but a divine friend, an intimate companion. Jesus describes the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as our helper, the intimate one who comes alongside us both as individuals and the local church. The New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus and embrace the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, in these physical tents, Wow. The context of spiritual and sexual purity, Paul says that do you not know your bodies, your physical bodies, if you're in Christ, are a temple of the Holy Spirit? See, without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the birth of the church and its flourishing across many cultures around the globe for 2,000 years is completely nonsensical, unexplainable, and incoherent. We must grasp this in the opening verses. Luke shatters the imminent frame of our 21st century. If you are wrestling, as many of us do with doubt, about the truthfulness of the Christian faith, let me just suggest to you for your consideration, one of the greatest apologetics for the Christian faith is the church's continued vitality around the globe 2,000 years after its birth. 
But every changed life in Christ is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. I was reminded that this week, I met someone and interacted with someone that I have admired for a long time. His name is Arthur Brooks, and uh, some of our Made to Flourish leadership were in Washington, D.C. for a convening around faith, work, and economics. Arthur Brooks has written so many books. He was a former professor of economics in Syracuse. Maybe you've read him. He contributes to the New York Times. And he had much to say. He was one of the presenters. It was great to spend time with him. But I have to tell you, during the presentation to all these people, he shared his faith in Jesus. How Christ reached out to him as a professor of economics in Syracuse and transformed his life. And I'm sitting there thinking, you are so brilliant, you are so prolific, your name is a household word around the academic elites of our country, and you are speaking your love for Jesus Christ. Just a reminder, the Christian faith is not just a set of propositions we believe, it is a transforming experience in your life and mine. The Christian faith is an experiential faith, deeply experiential. Luke presents this experiential faith the birth of the church. This is our DNA. Prayerful dependence, supernatural empowerment, and now notice the focus is the global reach of the church. Do you see it? Look at verse 5. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then he gives this list that Keith read for us so brilliantly. If you were to launch a global enterprise in the first century, you would start with Rome, wouldn't you? But it's not Rome that's the epicenter of God's world, it is Jerusalem. But it is in Jerusalem, people from every tribe and tongue are there for the festival of first fruits. When you read Luke's roster, Luke is a brilliant historian. It's like a first century United Nations roster, right? Supernatural tongues are given at that moment under the sovereignty of God by the Holy Spirit, and it is met with amazement. It's not the amazement of skepticism. It is shock and awe that the triune God who created the universe has invaded it again in such power. And they immediately understand each other in their languages. If you've ever traveled to a place around the world, you know, they always say Americans are, you know, you know Americans because they only speak one language. If you've ever traveled in places in the world and you can't speak the native language, you know how helpless you are. Recently, I spoke in Los Angeles to a group of, a wonderful group of pastors. The majority of them were Hispanic or Latino, depending on the generation. That's how you call it. Either younger is Latino, Hispanic is older. And we had a wonderful time together. And as I spoke, next to me was Fernando Tamara, one of my good friends and a brilliant translator. And how grateful I was for him taking my words and translating it into their native language. And you know, I would say something and they'd kind of look at me and when he would say it, they would just be. This is the picture. Only in this case, they hadn't learned Spanish. The Holy Spirit gave them to him with brilliant fluency like that. And that makes sense because the first time we hear of the Holy Spirit is in Genesis 1 when the Spirit is hovering across the water. This is the very power of the universe, of God himself. <laughs> Teaching someone in a language they don't know is small potatoes for the Holy Spirit. The supernatural gift of hearing in one's own language. 
The gospel message now will go out to all people over the first century world who would head back after the Pentecost festival. You think God had something in mind? You think God's timing was perfect in launching the church? And even that, don't you love the skepticism of the first century? This was a hard sell in the first century too. Don't you love that Luke says, be such a brilliant story, he says, ah, some people say, ah, they're just drunk. Drunk my eye. It's nothing new in the unbelieving heart to seek to find some charade of a natural explanation for a clearly supernatural event. What a glorious and messy birth the church has. We see a prayerful dependence, a supernatural empowerment, and a global reach and a global enterprise. So as we explore the church in the book of Acts, our teaching team longs for you and me to have growing confidence that the Christian faith is not merely truths we believe, but a daily transformational experience we encounter. So let me ask some questions to get us started this morning. Are you experiencing a growing Christian faith? Three questions. First, how prayerful is your faith? No matter where we are in our prayer life, I get it, we all feel we can never measure up. I do. I could be more prayerful, and I'm a pastor for goodness sakes. But let me encourage all of us to take another step here. Prayer is a love language we grow in over time. A love language with the greatest lover of our souls. God's word says you and I are never alone in prayer. In fact, the Holy Spirit, our helper, helps us to pray. Paul is specific about that. He intercedes for us. So if you don't know how to pray, you're in good company. The Holy Spirit's there to help you. So why don't you lean on him? And pray like you've never prayed before. He is the ultimate translator to the throne room of God. In prayer, we are communing with the triune God about what we feel, yeah. What we love, what we long for, what we are doing together. Jesus taught us prayer is a spiritual discipline in our schedules that require time to set aside. But also prayer is an ongoing conversation with the triune God throughout the day. So what is one step you can take this week to become a more prayerful apprentice of Jesus? If you're newer to the faith or you're exploring the Christian faith, can I just encourage you to simply pray a simple prayer to God? Anyone could do that. God, if you're real and the Christian faith is true, give me ears to hear and eyes to see and reveal yourself to me, would you please? I have a hunch. If you keep your eyes and ears open, God really wants to answer that prayer in your life. Secondly, how spirit-filled is your faith? We're going to unpack more of this in the days ahead. But let me just say a couple things. The Christian faith is impossible to live or experience without supernatural empowerment. When we place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and makes us a new creation in Christ. As we enter his yoke of apprenticeship, we increasingly submit all aspects of our lives to him, friends. And as we submit and follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit increasingly transforms our very nature and character. The Apostle Paul describes it, notice the word fruit. It's only Pentecost, the feast of first fruits. 
The fruit of, fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I were to ask your spouse, your friends, your colleagues at work, your classmates at school to describe you and your character, would they say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? The Holy Spirit longs to transform you to be like Jesus and to glorify Jesus. The Apostle Paul reminds us that through willful disobedience to Jesus, we can hinder the Spirit's work in our lives and our witness to others. If you're not growing in intimacy with Jesus, experientially, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it may be a season of spiritual dryness. That's a part of spiritual growth. But there may also be an area of your life that is off limits to Jesus, that Jesus is knocking on your door. Something that needs immediate attention, an unreconciled relationship. Maybe you're harboring bitterness or anger towards someone or unwillingness to embrace sexual purity or dishonesty in your business dealings or a lack of stewardship with your money and wealth. Perhaps that's hindering you from experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Lastly, how public is your faith? How prayerful, how spirit-filled, and how public. The supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost gave the church a courageous boldness in the midst of great opposition to take the gospel to the world. And one of the challenges in our increasingly secular culture is faith is being pushed to the margin, at least Christian faith. And it's often found in public life. But by its very nature, the Christian faith is not a private faith. Only. It is a public faith. Let me ask you, is your faith a well-kept secret to those around you? Or is it something that cannot be hidden? I fear the pendulum has swung in our time from Christians rightly being concerned about being insensitive and sharing the gospel with others to not sharing the gospel at all out of fear of somehow offending them. The greatest neighborly love you can ever show to your neighbors is to share Christ with them. Your neighbors, friends, and colleagues need the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And God has placed you right there to give them an opportunity. The birth of the church reminds us of an important truth. Will you wrap this around your heart and your mind as we continue to explore this magnificent book. The Christian faith is not merely a set of beliefs we affirm, but an everyday experience with the living God we savor and cherish. Let's bow for prayer.